0: Well, good morning. Today we arrive at the sixth of seven letters uh, to the Churches of Asia Minor, the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Uh, We're going to find, by the way, that this is a great church that lasted actually for centuries. Now, Philadelphia was located about 30 miles southeast of Sardis on the main trade route um, from Smyrna on the coast to, to much of the east. Uh, to the interior. In fact, it was called the city was called the gateway to the east. The the, the trade route, plus being located on a postal uh, road from Troas uh, through Pergamum and Sardis, made Philadelphia a considerable commercial city. It was the most recent of the seven cities uh, founded about one hundred and eighty nine BC. Philadelphia, of course, you know, means brotherly love, but how did, it, how did it get that name? Well, it was named after a guy named Attalus Philadelphus. But the name Philadelphus was actually given to him because of his love for his older brother, uh, Eumenes. You see, Eumenes was the king of Pergamum, and and once Eumenes was thought to have been killed in battle, so Attalus was proclaimed, the younger brother was proclaimed king, but the news of Eumenes' death was greatly exaggerated, he wasn't actually killed, so when he showed back up in Pergamum, Attalus gladly gave the crown back to his brother. A few years later, the Romans pressured Attalus to, um, several times, in fact, to assume the throne, but he repeatedly refused. He didn't become king until his brother died in 159 AD. From such actions, he was, he was called Philadelphus, lover of his brother. And so the name Philadelphia came to mean city of brotherly love. That city was founded as sort of a, kind of a missionary enterprise. Now, not like we think of missionaries, but the city was put in place by Greek monarchs to the West uh, to introduce the region to Greek ways and Greek culture to make them loyal subjects, and they, 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 they largely succeeded. Greek was eventually spoken in, in, the, in the lands and Hellenism spread rapidly. You know, the only problem with the city, don't miss this, was its proclivity to earthquakes. That'll become important later. That earthquake of 17 A.D. that I mentioned last w- week, which leveled Sardis and also leveled Philadelphia, they were actually on the opposite sides of the same mountain, so m- being closer to the epicenter, uh, Philadelphia felt the aftershocks for, for, for some time. But, but the city, like Sardis, received help from Emperor Tiberius to rebuild it. In fact, it came like this. They were exempted from ta- paying taxes for five years. That'd be kind of cool. No taxes for five years. Maybe if we were exempted from that, we'd call this place Bidenville. Okay, maybe not. Um, In gratitude, the city renamed itself Neo Caesarea to honor Tiberius. City was located on a high hill, as cities then were often built for strategic defensive purposes. But it, but it was also surrounded by rich, fertile volcanic soil. And my wife, Tana, and I uh, saw that kind of soil on a vineyard on the slopes of Mount Vesuvius, you know, where Pompeii is. It was, it was perfect for growing grape grapevines, and Philadelphia became known for its wine production. In, in fact, while it was like all the cities of its day, worshiping many gods, its patron god was Dionysus, who was the god of wine and pleasure, which actually brings me to some incredibly important truths that I, I want to share. Say, so you had no introduction. How'd I do, Paul? I had no introduction, but actually I just fooled him because now I'm going to get to my introduction. You may have noticed, as we are making our way through seven cities, how important th- the gods were. All of the cities, all of them were polytheistic and, and with temples built to a variety of different God's. We've seen the worship of a pantheon of Greek and Roman gods to include Artemis and and, and Aphrodite and Zeus and Roma and Athena and Apollo and Sabella and today Dionysus and and, and then, of course, the Roman emperor. But but here's my question, where are all of those gods and temples gone? Well, where are they? I personally don't know of any who worship the gods of Greece or, or Rome today except for Maybe Marvel and the Avengers. Where have they gone? Well, (laughs) they're all dead and gone, figures of antiquity with no lasting divine or eternal value. Uh, We might have an image or two, statues and paintings in in museums that we pay to see. We we might have a column or two left. Remember, the largest temple to Artemis um, uh, in the uh, ruins of Ephesus, it was four times larger than the Parthenon, has today one column left standing. Whoa! Uh, Last week, the temple to Cybele, which is actually the same goddess, had a whopping two columns left standing. Now, there have been a few temples reconstructed to give us a glimpse of, into religious history. Uh, for example, a little-known site preserves the best of Greek um, uh, architecture in Italy, actually some of the best ruins in, in the world. They are in Pastum, uh, south of Salerno, and the site boasts impressive temples to, uh, to Hera and to uh, Athena. Uh, we, my family and I visited there But there actually weren't a lot of people there. And one thing, I noticed one other thing. There were no worship services going on. Huh. There's also the Parthenon in Athens, happened to be there just a few weeks ago, dedicated to the goddess Athena, the patron goddess of Athens. Athena, Athens, get it. Um, It's an incredible structure located on the Acropolis that that high place right outside of Athens where the Apostle Paul actually visited visited there are, there are the remains of other temples there as well incredibly preserved and there were large crowds there but again I noticed no worship services going on. You may remember when Paul visited Athens in Acts chapter 17. We read the following. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that is Timothy and Silas in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Stop right there. Did you see what that just said? Paul was provoked about false gods. We don't want to, we don't want to do that, do we? We don't want to be offensive to anybody. We don't hurt anybody's feelings. We certainly don't want to be provoked or irritable or angry about it. Paul was. This recent trip that we just took, uh, it's for a time we were on a, on a cruise ship and we sailed into this giant harbor into the city of Istanbul, 20 million people, and it was a beautiful uh, arriving there and there across the landscape, this huge city dotted with mosques, huge mosque after mosque after, after mosque. I don't mind telling you that I was provoked, deeply saddened. In fact, we visited a couple of mosques, not the highlight of the trip. One of those mosques was a former church the Church of St. John, it was the second largest built church building ever built next to St. Peter's in Rome, now stands as a monument to Islamic takeover I was provoked. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, in Latin we call it Mars Hill, where politicians and philosophers gathered to chat. And said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects, for while I was passing through and examining the objects, not the gods, the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this, this I proclaim to you. Here he is, the God who, who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now, Mars Hill is right next to the Acropolis. He could see the Parthenon. he probably gestured to it. All of those temples on top of it, he doesn't live there. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he is made from one man every nation. That's Adam, by the way. Every man... Every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. God has determined where you live. If you don't like Boone, take it up with him. That they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist. As even some of your poets have said, for we are also his children. Paul agreed with that in the fact that we are created in the image of God. Being then children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature, listen, we ought not to think of God like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by art or thought or imaginations, the stuff you made up Amen. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Here's my point. People through the millenniums have worshipped a variety of gods, sometimes several at one time. They have fashioned him uh, uh, in the, out of their own imaginations, out of wood and stone. They have set him or her, by the way, up in temples of their own making. They have created their own forms of worship and, and usually in ways that satisfy their own sinful desires and craven lusts. And, and, and they've all gone the way of all the earth into ultimate oblivion because they're false. God to provoke us. Here we are studying the ancient letters to ancient churches, found recorded for us in these Christian scriptures. Here we are. We just sang for half an hour worshiping the God of the Bible. Two thousand years later. What's the difference? Paul said it. We worship the God who made the world and everything in it. We did not fashion a God of our own making, following humankind's sinful personalities and propensities. You do understand that those pantheon of Greek and Roman gods are just elevated humans with the same sinful passions. We didn't make God up. The true and the living God made us, and he has made himself Known to us Further, he does not dwell in these temples uh, made with human hands, now, by the way, lying in ruins. We did not fashion a God out of gold or silver or stone, but the thought or imaginations of men, we didn't serve him with human hands, since he has need of nothing. Rather, he gives life to all, and in him we l- live and move, and the old translation I like, ha- and have our being. And this true and living God, as we have seen, is calling all people everywhere to repent, because there is coming a day when he will judge everyone, every person who has ever lived by the one whom he raised from the dead who now lives forevermore. If this, it is this God that we worship, it is this God that we serve, it is this God that we love, and it is this God to whom we have given our lives. Oh, and by the way, Jesus said that he would build his church in the very gates of hell, would never overcome her. and And, and now we are, Reading in this book, the end of the story, that is the end of history, the end of all time. And guess what we find? The God, the true and the living God, will one day return to make all things right and to take his people to himself. He has and will always exist and always, always be worthy of worship. There will always be eternal worship of our God. Which means this, don't miss this, catch this. There will never be a day in human history when Christianity will be extinct. Did you hear what I just said? There will never be a day that you will simply read about this God of uh, of the Christians in history books. There will never be a day that you simply visit museums and church buildings where this Christian God was once worshipped. Oh, to be sure, there are such cathedrals and buildings. They're beautiful. I love to visit them. Some now turn to mosques to our great shame, The God of the Bible is everywhere worshiped, and His Son, Jesus Christ, will always be due the honor and glory of His name. He will forever be worshiped by His people. And this book tells us that there is coming a time when Jesus uh, will come back for His own, even though many in the world, and frankly in this country, have soundly rejected Him. Remember, there is coming a day when they will know the truth, and they will bow before Him with whom they have to do. Don't miss this. There is coming a day when every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, even those who have denied, opposed, and ridiculed him and his followers, remember that as opposition continues to increase in our own culture. You serve the true and the living God. The opposition was rife in these seven cities, largely because Christians refused to worship false gods. They refused to worship idols. They refused, listen, They refuse to worship a man become God. That's the emperor. Um, Rather, they worship God become man to die for the sins of his people. And when we get to Philadelphia, we find that this city was called the place of brotherly love, but it was anything but, except, except in the Christian church, you've If you've been paying attention, have you noticed what is going on in our own country? The vitriol, the vehemence, the violence, the division, the racism, the chaos, the mayhem, the death. Where is the brotherly love? In the church of Jesus Christ. We have an opportunity to shine the light of the gospel, perhaps like we have never before. May we not squander this opportunity because the light shines most brightly in the darkness. With all that, by way of introduction, let's read the letter. Revelation 3, verses 7 and following say this, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, He who is holy who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, we've heard that before, "who, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you because... You have kept the word of my perseverance. I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown." He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has ear has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is one of two letters, two churches of which Jesus has no correction. (laughs) Can you imagine? Only commendation. Interestingly, the other one is Smyrna, which faced similar challenges. That is from the Jewish community, there are those who rejected Jesus as the Messiah and sent out to dismiss and discredit the teachings of Christianity. The Jewish community by this time, you should know this. Remember this: Christians had been barred from attending Jewish synagogues throughout the empire. Some of their fiercest opposition came from the Jews. And yet, in both Smyrna and now Philadelphia, the church did not bend to the pressure. They did not bend to the pressure. These seven churches face far more persecution and opposition than we have ever faced. And Philadelphia did not bend. So Jesus has some great things to say to them. To us, as opposition increases from every quarter, the encouragement for us is to remain faithful. After all, here's the point of the morning, we worship the true and the living God. Here's the outline of the text, it's only five points today, the angel of the Church of Philadelphia, which we've already covered, the self-description of Christ, the commendation of the Church, the promises to the overcomers, and then the call to hear the Spirit. Again, notice. In that outline, no correction, no call to repentance. What an encouraging, encouraging letter. already talked about the city, don't know much about the church. It appears only here in Revelation 1 and, and, and 3 in the Bible. We assumed it, assume it was founded during Paul's two-plus-year ministry uh, in Asia Minor. But, but, but notice Jesus' self-description in the second part of verse 7. First, the one who is holy, the one who is true. How many of us know that the Bible, uh, excuse me, that God is regularly referred to in the Old Testament as the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel? Um, for example, uh, we find in Isaiah chapter six. We'll find in Revelation four eventually that are that four living creatures surround the thro- throne. They have six wings. With two, they cover their face. With two, they cover their feet. And with two, they fly. And they cease not. They cease not, saying day and night, "Holy, holy, holy," is the uh, uh, is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. How many times have they said it since we've been in this room? Remember when demons came face to face with Jesus, they knew who he was. And so they fell at his feet and cried out, we know who you are. The Holy One of God. This was a clear declaration of deity. In fact, you should know that this title appears again in Revelation 6, only it is applied uh, to God who sits on the throne. When the souls of those who have been martyred, they are now... Uh, before the altar are at the throne, they cry out, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the text goes on, and there was given you know, to each of them a white robe, hold on, there's a few more martyrs to come. You go, whoa, 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 wait just a minute. That's in Revelation chapter six, I didn't think there were any Christians there in, on earth then. Is that right? Hold on to that thought, we'll come back to it. God alone is the Holy One, and Jesus unabashedly takes the title upon Himself. Further, He is also the true One, the genuine genuine One, the faithful One. By the way, these, you should know that these self-descriptions are not found in John's descriptions, but Jesus takes them on Himself anyway. Why? Here's the question. Why would He remind the church in Philadelphia uh, that He was the Holy One and the true One? Because the main source of opposition was the Jewish synagogue who denied the deity and the messiahship of Jesus. So Jesus reminds them, I am the holy one. I am the genuine one. Yes, there are those who oppose you wanting to deny me, but know that I am he. We will need, I believe, in our lifetimes, we will need to be reminded of this increasingly in our pluralistic culture. We love and serve the true and the living God. Further, he says, I have the key of David who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no no, no one opens. What what does that mean? It's a clear allusion to Isaiah chapter 22. Remember I've told you that the book of Revelation is filled with Old Testament allusions. I haven't covered all of them because we'd be in Revelation like forever. Never mind. Um, In Isaiah 22, there's a steward named Shebna who was in charge of Hezekiah, King Hezekiah's royal household, and he was incompetent, so he was replaced by a man named Eliakim. And to Eliakim was given authority and the key to the house of David And, quote, when he opens, no one will shut, and when he shuts, no one will open. The point is, he was given authority over the palace, the key of David. And when he opened the entrance to the palace where the king lived, you see, no one could shut it. But when he shut it, no one could open it. Jesus applies this verse, which by the first century many saw as messianic anyway, he applies it to himself. I have the key of David. I open and I shut. Further, remember in chapter 1, Jesus has the keys of death and Hades, which means he has authority over death and authority over entrance into Hades. Here, further, he adds to that and he says, I have the key of David, which means Jesus and Jesus alone has the key to allow or disallow entrance into God's kingdom, Jesus and Jesus alone has the authority to allow or disallow into God's kingdom. Jesus not only has authority over death, he not only has authority over the place and placement of death, Jesus alone will permit entrance into God's kingdom. When he opens the door to someone, by his death and resurrection, no one will shut it. Further, when he shuts the door to someone, no one else will open it. Entrance into the kingdom of God is controlled by Jesus Alone, that's the point. There is no other way because you see, there are no other gods. Listen to me, this text screams, screams at us with the authority, deity, and exclusivity of Jesus Christ. That's what we're supposed to get. Bringing us to the much needed commendation in verses 8 to 11. I know your deeds. But he holds off listing those deeds for a moment. It appears he goes on a tangent, but he's actually not. He applies what he just said in verse 7 to the church in Philadelphia. Can you imagine how encouraging this would have been? I know your deeds. Behold, listen up, look is what it means. I haven't put before you. I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. I have the key of David, the authority to open the door into my father's kingdom, and I have opened it for you, and no one can shut it. Why does he say that to this particular church? Because the Jews had shut the door to the synagogue. They had shut the door seemingly of access to God, said, you can't come in here, and Jesus says, but you can come. You can come into my father's house, my father's kingdom. I've opened the door and they and no one else can shut it. And I'm the only one who can open it. Why was, why had he opened it to them? Because you have proven the reality of your faith by your commitment to me, Jesus says. He says three things about them. You have a little power. Now that's not meant to be pejorative, a negative statement. Don't read it that way. Most agree that Jesus means simply that Philadelphia was a small church. Do you think that that could be encouraging to churches across the world today? Do you know that over 80% of churches in the United States went 100 or less? Do you think this would be an encouragement to them? Most agree that Jesus simply means Philadelphia was small. They didn't have the power that comes from size and numbers and influence and money and politics, the things that many churches pursue today. Nope. They only had a little power. And yet in the midst of that smallness, that seeming insignificance, you have kept my word. You have remained faithful to the gospel and all that it requires in obedience. And you have faithfully followed, even though it has cost you. And in the midst of it, they're a little church, and the entire culture is against them. And in the midst of that opposition, you have not denied my name. Oh, that that would be said of us, that we would occasionally be provoked. We must be jealous for God. For Jesus says something startling in verse 9. and We already got a glimpse of this truth in His letter to the church of Smyrna, where Jesus said, I know your tribulation, your poverty, even though you really are rich, and the blasphemy or slander by which, by those who say they are Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Whoa. Make your skin crawl, strong words. We saw that what Jesus meant was these were ethnically Jews, but not spiritually Jews. You see, to be spiritually a Jew uh, was to be one of God's chosen people, to stand with God and his purposes. And here it was clear that they stood in opposition to God and his purposes, to Christ and his church. You're not Jews. You're not my chosen people. Remember Romans chapter 2, I love this. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Paul says a Jew is not one who is simply physically a Jew, but one who is inwardly a Jew. There is a sense in which you are his Jewish people. Later in Romans chapter 11, Paul reminds us that the Jews were broken off the olive tree so that wild branches, that's us, Gentiles, could be grafted in. Yes, Paul does make clear in that chapter that he's not done with the Jews, but the point is God's attention is on New Testament believers in Jesus, that is his church, those who have accepted his son, and these Jews had not, so they were of the synagogue of Satan. Wow. They claim to be Jews, but they aren't. That is, they may have the physical blood of Abraham flowing through their veins, but these Jews are not my people because they are slandering my people. Jesus takes it a step further in his letter to Philadelphia. They lie. And then he says something absolutely incredible. This, this This is stunning. I will make them, these unbelieving Jews, come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Whoa. Several times in the book of Isaiah, God tells the Jews there is coming a day when He will make the Gentiles who have oppressed them come and bow down at their feet. For example, Isaiah chapter 60, the sons of those who have afflicted you will come bowing to you and all those who despise you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet and they will call you... Jerusalem, the city of the Lord, the Zion, of uh, uh, the Holy One of Israel. There's the Holy One again, uh, the Holy One of, of Israel. That's what it's going to do. But the Gentiles who persecuted you come and bow at your feet. You see, the Gentiles who have afflicted. Unbelievably, unbelievably, Jesus reverses that and says to the church, says to you, the Jews who have afflicted you as my people will come and bow at your feet. By extension, we can say all those who have stood against you and, put, and opposed you will bow at your feet. You will be vindicated. How in the world does that work? Back in Isaiah 45, we read these words. Thus says the Lord, the Gentiles who have afflicted you, is what he means, will come over to you and will be yours. And they will walk behind you. That's a symbol of defeat and submission and they will come over in chains and will bow down to you and they will make supplication to you and here's what they will say surely God is with you and there is none else no other God do you see there is no other God my brothers and sisters there's only one true and living God And He has made Himself known to us in the person of His Son. And to deny Jesus is to deny God. He has made Himself known to us through His Son, Jesus. Don't let anyone tell you, you hear this all the time, that us and and Jewish people who don't believe in Jesus and, and even Muslims, that we all worship the same God. No, we don't. The true and the living God has made Himself known by His Son, Jesus. And to reject Jesus is to not know God. To deny Jesus is to deny God. They will therefore bow down to you, and then I will make known, I will make them know that I have loved you. Yes, they will oppose you, but at the end, they will know the truth about Jesus and His followers. This is an incredible, an incredible statement. And then verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, the idea here is that you have kept, you have persevered in my name, I also will keep you. You kept me, I will keep you. And then the rest of verse 10 (laughs) has produced no small amount of conversation and debate. I could preach an entire sermon on this verse. Some of you will think that I am. Look at it. I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world. To test those who dwell on the earth. Remember, we have seen that those who dwell on the earth, earth dwellers, in the Book of Revelation, always refer to unbelievers. So this testing, there's an hour of testing which is going to come upon this world, not just there in Philadelphia, but upon the world of unbelievers. But I will keep you from it. This is a strong verse used by pre-tribulation dispensationalists, if you don't know what that is, you're lucky, who say the rapture of the church, the rapture, the catching away of the church will happen before the events of Revelation 6 to 19. That is, before the tribulation, when God tests the world of unbelievers, and yet in Revelation chapter 6, we just saw that there are people, that, that God says to the people who have been martyred, there are still people on earth who, are, the, their number of, of martyrs is yet to be filled up, and that's after seal number 5, by the way. Still believers on the earth. What happened? Did you miss some? They say before the tribulation, when God tests the world, of unbelievers, he will keep the church safe from that testing by delivering the church, taking them out of the earth. You've probably heard this before. Since this, while a relatively new doctrine in terms of church history not held in the early church, is widely held by evangelicals today, widely held by many in this, I understand, in this room. And why would you not hold it? It sounds uh, too good to be true that we won't be here during during the tribulation period when God is pouring out His wrath on the world for their rejection of His Son and their and uh, their persecution of His people. We we won't endure that, you see. We will be raptured before this seven-year tribulation. Now, I'm not going to get much into that today other than to say this, an equally valid and legitimate translation and contextually more correct of this verse is to say, I will keep you through the hour of testing, not from, through, which is why in the book of Revelation, you see... Believers running around all over the place. While things are going to get really tough, I will preserve your faith. I may not preserve your physical life. There are still martyrs to be made, but your spiritual life I will keep through the tribulation. I will keep you as you have kept me. In other words, this rather new idea of a rapture that takes the church out before Revelation 6, before the tribulation, may not be true. And if that is possible, even likely, I want you to understand my motivation. I would be remiss to not prepare you for the coming of the great persecution and tribulation. The book of Revelation was written to encourage you to persevere in the midst of great affliction. If we are not going to be here, why not just say it? Why was the book of Revelation even written if we're not going to be here? Now, I've tipped my hat. You know that I believe the church is going through the tribulation. I believe that there's going to be one very public second coming and, and no secret first coming, that we the church will go meet the Lord in the air. First Thessalonians chapter 4 seems rather public, trumpet of God, dead in Christ will rise, rather public when he returns, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. You say, I don't think I like that. Great for you, I don't like it either. But I will prepare you and not teach a deliverance doctrine based on weak Biblical support to encourage you to not worry about it when John is writing to encourage just the opposite, to encourage you to persevere in the midst of severe persecution, my brothers and sisters. And if you're not prepared, if I don't prepare you, then I have n- missed my calling. I'm sure that I will talk about this more in the weeks and months to come. I'm sure that I will say this more than once, but if you hold a pre-tribulation rapture, and by the way, there are many very godly scholars that I love and follow and read. I love them. Uh, They're much smarter than I. But if you hold to a pre-tribulation rapture and you are right, listen. You can just wave to me on the way up and say, see, I told you so. I will be fine with that. Further, I hope that we do not go according to our belief. What do I mean? That you get to wave at me and say, if only you had believed, you would have been raptured too. Enjoy the tribulation. God's testing is going to come on the earth. We're going to read about it soon enough. And if we are here, he will keep us Through it is the point. Contextually, that's what he's saying. Notice verse 11. He says, I am coming quickly, which means his coming is eminent. It can happen at any time. Hold fast to what you have. Don't let go. Don't turn away so that no one will take your crown. Just like last week when he says, I won't erase your name. This is meant to be an encouragement, not a threat. Uh, Hold fast. Listen, no one's going to take your crown. Leading to the fourth point, I'm going to move very quickly here. The promises to you, the overcomers in verse 12. He makes two promises, one of security and one of a new name. This is incredible. Very quickly. First, he says, he who overcomes the opposition remains faithful and keeps my name and obeys my word. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. This doesn't speak, pillar doesn't speak of support here. It speaks of firmness. It speaks of immovability. It speaks of security which would have been an encouragement to a people living in an earthquake-prone and persecution-prone environment. Now, remember, we said that there is no temple which holds God, right? I said that at the beginning, Here, Jesus is talking about being in the presence of God. I will make you a pillar firmly planted in the presence of God. You see Revelation 21 and 22 talk about the new Jerusalem and living in the presence of God. And we read specifically, it says there, there's no temple in it because God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. In other words, all of creation is his, and we will dwell in his presence forever. That's the temple. The, the pillar speaks of, of being in his presence firmly, not, not a pillar that will, listen, like we talked about at the beginning, not a pillar that will fade away and decay and be no more. The idea here is that of permanence and steadfastness and security. We will remain standing in his presence, and we will not go out from it that is God's presence any more. Hallelujah. Second promise, and he will write three names on us. Listen, three names on us. First is the name of God, which speaks of his ownership. He owns you. Second, he's going to write the name of the city of God. That's the new Jerusalem, which speaks of our citizenship there. Think of it as a passport, but it's going to print it right on your head. Third, he's going to write, Jesus, I'm going to write my new name on them, which speaks of him Purchasing us we belong to him by his blood last point call to hear the spirit he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches again I want you to hear this text screams the truth think think of a text that you get on your phone all caps bold I don 't know if you can make can you make it bold on a phone exclamation points they're yelling at you the, Screaming at us today, there is one God, and we know him through his divine son. And so, follow him, and no one will be able to separate us from him. That's the point. Let's stand for prayer. Father, this is an incredible, encouraging letter to the people of Philadelphia and the people of Alliance Bible Fellowship. The, The encouragement is that you have us. We worship the true and the living God. There is none other. You have us in the very palm of your hand. No one can snatch us from your hand. We're kept secure by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We belong to you. We look forward to the day. He spoke of it as a, as, a, as a future, and I will write the name, the name of my God on you. I will write the name of the new Jerusalem on you. I will write my new name on you. We long for that day, that it will be clear to all and to us that we belong to you. And so we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Make us, take us home. We surrender everything to you. We worship you in Christ's name, amen.